بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم سمام غزائی رحم اللہ begins his letter and I'm going to only do this once in the Arabic this part اعلم ایوہ الولد اعلم ایوہ الولد المحب العزیز اعلم means know be aware be focused know deeply ایوہ الولد ولد literally means son Mohib here means beloved and Aziz means dear. So in English it would mean oh my dear beloved son. Here he has translated Walad as disciple because actually the person is not literally Mama Ghazanimullah's son. But this is a way in those of you who know Urdu and I know not everybody here knows Urdu but every now and then we will use one or two sentences in Urdu to explain for my own enjoyment. <laughs> and then I will translate it in English for your enjoyment. And in Urdu we would say, Oh, putter. Oh, mere putter. It's a way of showing love. Oh, my son, in English. You can't capture That's translation in English. But it doesn't have the same feeling. Right? But obviously, you can imagine, and this way we would first explain this to you, that right here this is a sufficient job for the student. <laughs> That's enough. Just to receive these words from Imam Ghazali Rahimullah Ta'ala. Can you imagine such a great alim of the deen, such a great shaykh to call you his walad? This itself must have moved that student like anything. To call you his muhib, to call you his beloved, to call you his aziz, to call you his dear. Better jawab to Idriyogya. First answer is here in these three words. And this was because Imam Ghazari was moved by the ikhlas of the questioner. And he said that I want something that I'm going to live my whole life by. I'm not just asking you like that. So he clearly has won over Imam Ghazali's heart. That at the outset Imam Ghazali is calling him his walad, his son, his muhib, his beloved, his aziz, his disciple. And this is what we call in the Islamic tradition Barakatus Sa'il and Barakatus Su'al. That there is a Barakah of the questioner and a Barakah that the question brings when that questioner asks that question with ikhlas. So now what's happened is the two of them love one another for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They have that love for one another and they have that ikhlas and sincerity and that learning. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts a barakah, He puts His blessings in that relationship. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to put barakah in this. And the first thing He does, which was the last thing that He asked, the last thing that He asked for was du'a. The very first thing He does is give Him du'a. Atalullahu. That may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lengthen. Or He has put prolong. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lengthen or prolong. Your days in obedience to Him, your life in obedience to Him. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make you travel on the path of those whom He loves. So He gives Him the dua right there. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make you travel and may He be your companion, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran, Huwa ma'akum aina ma kuntum, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you wherever you may be. So he gives him a dua right there and then. Then second thing, so he's working backwards. The last thing he had asked for was dua, that's the first thing he got. Second to last thing he asked for was nasiha, right? 
There was the fatwa, the questions, the nasiha, and the du'a. The first thing he's getting is the du'a. The second is the nasiha. And here, Nabi Kareem Sallallahu tells him, That you should know that advice will be given to you from the treasure trove in the minds of Nabuat of Nabi Kareem That advice should be quoted from the gold mine of messengerhood of Nabuat of Risala. So he says, you ask me for Nasiha. So Nasiha is going to come from the Sunnah, from the Ahadith, from the teachings of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then he tells him that if you have received nasiha from him, what need do you have of my nasiha? <laughs> if you receive nasiha from him, what need do you have of my nasiha? Now remember this. I want you to remember this quote because technically Imam Al-Zai isn't going to stick to this. Many times people engage in what I call pull quote journalism. Pull quote journalism is what reporters do. They write a little 300 word piece and the editor pulls a quote out of it and gives it a big font. That's called a pull quote. This is a great disservice to the Islamic intellectual tradition that you use pull-quote journalism. So pluck out, look, Imam Ghazali also says that the only thing you need to do is follow hadith. Read the whole text, he's going to tell him things. He is going to tell him things. What he means is that you're going to first and foremost take your nasiha from hadith, and then, because clearly you're an alim, you already have ilm of hadith, you need to make that journey from ilm to amal. That is what nasiha I will give you. So Ghazal is going to give him nasiha. From his own self and from other past masters as well. But what he initially says is he's also training him. That look, the real benefit in nasiha is going to lie in that nasiha that comes from Nabi Kareem Wasallam. And then he says, and if you have not received that yet, then tell me what have you achieved in these years gone by. Again, remember he's addressing a mother, so graduate. Oh, what in the world were you doing all those years? <laughs> all that time you spent studying tafsir, ta'ala, studying hadith, وسلم, and you're saying you still need nasiha? What were all those years of your mother's education, if anything, other than nasiha? And remember what I told you, Ghazali's prime worry and prime target audience were ulama. Were leading ulama, leading grad, top graduates. The leading young scholars of his time. That was his prime audience. So now the first thing he's going to do is then he's going to mention to him certain ahadith. And first he's going to mention those hadith that are going to talk. But let me do them with you one by one. So now he's going to keep using this refrain. You will find ayuhal walad, which he's going to keep calling, O disciple. Maybe there in your other translation, O dear beloved son. Right? Ayyuhal Walad, Ayyuhal Walad. He's not going to keep saying Muhibbul Aziz, but it's understood actually. The feeling of the Arabic is like that, that you can say something in detail once, and then you may use a shortened version, but the detail is always understood. So first somebody calls me Kamaluddin Ahmad, and then says Kamal. But it's understood when they say Kamal, they mean Kamaluddin Ahmad, right? They don't mean a different Kamal. Once they said Kamaluddin Ahmad first, so every time he writes Ayyuhal Walad, embedded in that is Ayyuhal Walad al-Muhibbul Aziz. So it means this whole risala is sprinkled with, is dripping with the love of Imam Razali for the student. And he would have felt that every time he heard this Ayyuhal Walad. 
he would feel the muhibbul al-aziz every time he reads the ayuhal walad. So, oh my dear student, from all of those things, from among or included in all of those things which Nabi Kareem sallallahu gave nasiha, included in all of the nasiha that the Prophet gave to his ummah, is this hadith. Alamatu iradillahi ta'ala an al-abdi That the sign that you can tell that Allah subhanahu has withdrawn or turned away from his servant and slave Ishtighaluhu bima la ya'nihi Is that Allah subhanahu occupies him in things that are not of concern to him Allah subhanahu makes him engaged and occupied in things that do not concern him Fine And if an hour of a man's life slips by it's actually, if a moment, sa'a, if a moment of a man's, if a, per, a moment of a person's life slips by, in other than that for which he was created by means of worship of ibadah, then it is proper, it befits him that Allah's fountain should extend or prolong or protract this affliction. And that person who passes the age of 40, and even then, virtue has not become dominant over his vice, that the good has not surpassed over his evil. فَلْيَتَّجَحَّزْ إِلَى النَّارِ This is the words in the Bikram. فَلْيَتَّجَحَّزْ إِلَى النَّارِ That that person should be, you can say get ready, should be prepared, should anticipate. Should anticipate and expect nothing else for them other than the fire of Jahannam. And Imam Muzali ends this with and in this nasiha kifayatun ilm this is sufficient for the people of knowledge. Now what does this mean? Okay, number one. And you will find another very famous hadith of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from the beauty and nobility of the Islam of a person is that he leaves those things that don't concern one, don't concern him or her. And the way he's saying, the Prophet is saying that Allah Subhanahu is withdrawn, what does it mean that as long as the Hidayah keeps coming, the person keeps getting pushed towards those things that concern him, i.e. benefit him, i.e. will bring him to the noble Akhirah. And when Allah Subhanahu pulls back the Hidayah, this is by the way what it means in Quran when Allah Subhanahu says, يُذِلُّ مَنْ that he misguides whom he wills. Allah SWT doesn't actively misguide a person, but what Allah SWT can do is pull back his hidayah. Stop giving hidayah to that person who keeps ignoring it, keeps failing to respond to it, stops paying heed to it. Allah SWT can pull back. Just like sometimes you may give up on a person. Allah SWT pulls back the hidayah. That's possible. And one sign of that is now this person starts busying themselves, occupying themselves with things that aren't of any benefit to him, use to him, things that don't concern him in terms of his preparation for the Akhirah. And then he says that even a moment, a sa'a, even a moment of a person's life slips by. In other than that for which he was created in Ibadah. It doesn't mean that human beings are not the meaning of the Sadiq. Right, it's clear this is hadith. I'm not explaining Zazali here, I'm explaining hadith, right? Because Imam Zazali quoted a hadith of Nabi Yaqeen sallallahu alayhi The human being has not been created for 24 hours worship. The name of that creation which has been created for 24 hours worship is called angels. Human being is not supposed to worship Allah 24 hours in terms of formal worship. 
that is five times a day, that is certain types of worship, nawafil, du'a, dhikr, tilawat, etc. But a human being has been created for ubudiyah, for servanthood, for a self-conscious identity. 24-hour self-conscious identity that I'm the servant and slave of Allah. That ubudiyah. When they have that ubudiyah, then every single thing they do in life can be transformed into ibadah. That's the second way the word ibadah is used in Arabic. The first way is for formal worship. And the second is for any mundane act that is done with the consciousness of ubudiyah that renders that act like an act of worship. For example, the act of eating. So if a person begins eating with the sunnah du'a, ends eating with the sunnah du'a, and then eats with the intention that, Oh Allah, I'm eating this food in order to get strength to do your ibadah. I'm eating this food, Ya Allah, replace the molecules in me that did sin, make them decompose and exit my body and replace them with this new halal food that I'm eating, so that I get more molecules in myself than I never did sin. So he just transformed by means of that niyat, he transformed that mundane act of eating, became ibadah. The person goes to sleep at night, recites the sunnah du'a before sleeping, recites the sunnah du'a upon waking. It makes niyat that, Ya Allah, when I sleep, make me strong and energetic so that when I wake, I rise, I'm fresh for your ibadah. All that period of night, active ibadah, counts as ibadah. So this is what he means. That insan, that human is, who is always has the proper concern for himself, which is concern for his akhirah, will be able to transform even the most mundane of acts into ibadah. And a person who doesn't do that, then he's saying it is proper that his affliction be protracted. What does it mean that it befits him that he should continue to be occupied with that which doesn't concern? This is the affliction here. The affliction means that that being occupied with that which is of no benefit to him. Right? Then the Prophet said, and sometimes this last part of the hadith is quoted separately. Right? This second part is a more quoted part of the hadith. That that person who passes 40 without khair becoming dominant on his shar, then let him get ready for Jahannam. This is referred to that person who is born and raised and attains balagha inside the deen of Islam. This is referred to that person who has open access to everything about the deen of Islam from when they were born and raised through balagha up till 40. So it means that that person spent, let's say, if you start at 15, so from 15 to 40, 25 years in neglect, despite knowing. That's what it means that after 25 years of neglect, despite knowing, then that person should not expect anything unless they change. It doesn't mean the doors close for them. The gates of Toba are always open, even well past 40, all the way up to a person passes away. But if they spent so many years, after so many years of neglect, they should feel now that unless they change, they're destined for nothing other than hellfire. That's how they should feel. And there's a lot of things in our tradition of Deen of Islam about the age 40. And Ibn al-Jawzi had written a long commentary on this issue of the age of 40. And the 40 is viewed as the pinnacle and the end of a person's prime, of a person's youth. Alright? And there's some mention of this about Sayyidina Musa Islam in the age of 40 in the Qur'an al-Karim as well. Fair, next page. Ayyuhal Walad, that oh my dear beloved son and student, an-nasihatu sihlatun, that nasiha is easy, it's easy to give nasiha, easy to listen to nasiha. 
But what is what is difficult was mushkulu kubuluha. What is difficult is to accept that nasiha, to accept that advice, to follow that advice, to practice that advice. That is difficult. It's easy to teach Ghazali, to listen to Ghazali, to live according to the teachings of Ghazali. That's a difficult thing to do. Difficult. What is difficult is accepting it, for it is bitter in taste to those who pursue vain pleasures. This Arabic for this is Hawa. Hawa. Vain pleasures. This is why Allah said in Quran, Afara'ita man ittakhada ilahuhu Hawa. That are you not amazed at that person who is taken as their God, their Hawa, who follows their own whims and fancies and desires and pleasures and worships their nafs instead of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa So those who want to fulfill the pleasures of their nafs, it's very difficult for them to accept nasiha. They can't do it. They get upset sometimes when you give them nasiha. They sometimes react, they rebel. This is all the reaction and rebellion of the nafs against Nasiha. Since forbidden things are dear to their hearts, that those things that Allah subhanahu has forbidden, the nahi on them, they're mahaboob, they're beloved to their hearts. They love ABC. Even though Allah Ta'ala has forbidden ABC, and Allah Ta'ala has forbidden love of ABC. But what can they do? They love it. So they don't want to hear the nasiha. They don't want to hear anything about that. This is particular so for this person. Now watch this. Ajeeb. This is particular sir. That that person who in particular is a student of rasami ilm, it meant dini ilm. Imagine what in the world Ghazali would think about people like you and me, right? Who study, you know, political science or computer science or economics or engineering. (laughs) He's saying that this is the case for the Talib of Ilm, Dini Ilm, the student of Islamic scholarly knowledge. Which one? That one who is occupied with gratifying his ego. (laughs) Occupied with gratifying his ego. This is nafs. So earlier you saw soul for nafs, now you see ego for nafs. Occupying his nafs, occupied with gratifying his nafs, with worldly gains, with worldly exploits. For he supposes that his knowledge alone, his ilm of deen alone, will be his salvation, and that his deliverance from the punishment of Allah will lie only in that ilm of deen. And then he can do without deeds. And this is also the conviction of the philosophers. That's another thing about the philosopher that they felt that is that the higher intellectual pursuits were the greatest nobility. So we don't need Atma, we don't need prayer, we don't need these things. You'll find people they say that I'm an educated person. I'm a person who enjoys higher intellectual pursuits. What they mean is that they view their higher intellectual pursuits as an excuse to allow themselves to fall into spiritual neglect. Spiritual neglect. They neglect their spiritual aspect because they're glorifying their intellectual aspect. So Imam Ghazali is writing about this. It's almost a thousand years ago. It's 900 something years ago. Right? Then Imam Ghazali says, right, about this person. 
First, he says, Subhanallah al Adim. Glory be to Allah Subhanahu Almighty. It means, Subhan, that Allah Subhanahu is exalted far above, far greater than these misconceptions and delusions that these people have. And then he uses a quite strong language. Uh, I mean, this person in English, it's actually the Arabic word Imam Zahid uses, Maghrur. La ya'lamu hadhan maghrur. That this person, Maghrur, means a self-delusional person. This person who has fallen into Ghrur. This person who has fallen into self-delusion. He doesn't understand that when he acquires ilm of deen, if he doesn't do amal on that ilm, then that ilm will actually serve as a decisive evidence against him. When he doesn't do or she doesn't do amal on her ilm, then ilm on its own is not of benefit. Ilm is of benefit when you practice it. Knowledge without action is not of benefit. In fact, that knowledge which is not practiced, that knowledge will not be a means of salvation. That knowledge will actually be an indictment against us on the Day of Judgment. That this person knew, but they didn't practice. And this is then he quotes another very famous hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ashadun nasi adab and yawm al-qiyamati. That the, amongst humanity, that person who will have the most severe punishment on the Day of Judgment, alimun. La yanfahu Allahu bi ilmihi will be an alim, a scholar of the deen of Islam. Will have the most intense punishment on the day of judgment. Which alim? That alim who was not able to practice their own knowledge, whom Allah Subhanahu did not enable them to benefit from their own knowledge. Allah Akbar Kamira. Scary hadith. The most strong punishment. And this is again, I told you, Imam Azai's target is young ulama. He's trying to tell them that, look, you just graduated from the madrasa. You spent so many years getting this ilm. If you don't do amal on this ilm, this ilm is going to be a hujja against you. It's going to be a decisive proof against you. Now, after mentioning this hadith, after mentioning this hadith, with the all purpose of this hadith is what to highlight that you must do amal on your ilm. Knowledge must be accompanied with deeds. Now Ghazali goes and is going to mention this classical feature of writing in the Sobos, that after mentioning hadith, then they will mention some incidents or events or stories of the early mashaykh of the Sobos to illustrate and explain and highlight that hadith. Alright? And we're going to have to comment on this one a little bit. That has been narrated that Imam Junaid Baghdadi Rahimullah was seen in the sleep of somebody after Imam Junaid had passed away. And it was asked, it was asked of him that what happened? Oh, Abul Qasim. Abul Qasim is the kunya of Junaid Baghdadi. And Junaid Baghdadi responded that all of these things that I used to say, so the fancy terms of the sof that I used to express, and all the Isharat, it's actually Ibarat and Isharat, all of the expressions and all of the indications, right? They were all evaporated and they came to nothing. What benefited me, what benefited me, nothing benefited me other than the Arabic is Rukayat. This is Musagr, those of you know Arabic, Raka, Rukaya. Small, few, short Rakats, short cycles of prayer. Rakatnaha, that I prayed them. Fijofil Layli in the heart of the middle of the night. Now here we come to our first question. 
And what does it mean to see a person in a dream? And second question is how can that person be saying what happened to them on the Day of Judgment when the Day of Judgment hasn't happened yet? How can that person be, how can Janib Baghdadi be saying what happened to me, what benefited me when I was called to account when that hasn't happened yet? Right? Okay. First thing is that I want to clear up some misconceptions. Number one is that misconception, I'm going to tell you, is a wrong understanding. It is not the correct understanding. It is a misunderstanding to think that Imam Junaid Baghdadi rahimullah ta'ala in his grave consciously makes a decision that he wants to appear to XYZ in their dream. That's not how it works. The dead do not have that power and ability to choose to manifest themselves and appear into the dreams of people. Is that clear? Okay. Second, in the hadith, and this is, you know, if we were to do this properly and we don't have that much time to discuss some of these things, but what we'd have to do is what I call build the workshop. So I'll show you a little bit how Islamic scholarship is supposed to be done. Build the workshop means that what you have to do is now you've come up with an issue that you're, right? I asked some questions that some of you should have had, right? What does it mean to see somebody in a dream? What is the meaning of their communication to you? And especially how can they be communicating about events that have yet to even happen to them, right? Whenever you're trying to figure out the answer to a question, that you have in your mind about Islam. For a person who is a non-scholar, you have to ask a scholar, how does the scholar go about doing it? I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes look, <laughs> an inside view hmm, of how Islamic learning and scholarship works, that you have to build the workshop. Workshop means is now we'd have to put every single thing mentioned in the Quran about dreams, every single tafsir of every single ayah that refers to dreams, Every single hadith about, about Nabi, by Nabi Karim Sassam on dreams, and every single commentary of every muhaddith on every one of those hadith, you have to build the workshop. When you build that workshop, then you have to dive into that workshop without any preconceived notions. You cannot dive in already having decided to position first, read later, as in a. You must read first and come up with your position later. <laughs> this is a mistake also some people do in the contemporary period. They have their position first, and then they dive into the Islamic tradition. And they will find somebody who has said something that can support them, then they put that as a footnote, and then they publish their pamphlet and they give it to you, and you see that he's published a pamphlet and it's got a footnote in it, or it's got a hadith in Bukhari in it, or he's got a commentary of tafsir by Qurtubi in it, and you think it must be the correct position, the sole correct position. No, you cannot determine that unless you've seen the whole workshop. This is but one piece of information that came out from that workshop. <clears throat> and if you were to see the whole workshop, maybe that one piece of information would actually be preferred over by so many other pieces of information. You would have no way of knowing that, because you don't have access to the workshop. <clears throat> now, if we were to do this for dreams, it would take us a long period of time, right? I would just tell you a few things that go on that workshop. Number one is what has been stated in the Qur'an al-Kareem by Allah subhanahu about the dreams of Sayyidina Yusuf salam, and what has been written by the Mufassirun about the dreams because there's a whole discussion in the Tafsir literature that were those dreams part of his Nabuwa? Were those dreams before his Nabuwa? Which dreams were before he was a Nabi? Which were after he was a Nabi? Certainly there's agreement that the first dream that he sees, right? Ra'itu ahada ashra kawkaba Right, that he sees these 11 stars and the whole thing which is the whole beginning of the whole Surah Yusuf, right? 
that they're doing sajjah to him and then he tells his father, the father says, don't tell anybody. Because <laughs> the father was a Nabi, he understood what the dream meant. Yusuf Alayhisam at that period was not a Zahir's Nabuat, wasn't manifested. This is how we call it in the Islamic Adab. He was a Nabi in terms of Bil Quwa, Bil Ihtimal, but not Bil Fi'l, it was not manifested. So he didn't understand what the dream meant, he didn't understand, but he had the dream. So Ghair Anbiya receiving dreams, Anbiya receiving dreams, lots of discussion about that. Then Ta'bir al-Ru'ya, the interpretation of dreams. Now in Hadith, second thing that goes in the workshop, Hadith, give you an example of something like that. Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said in a Hadith, that when I pass away, you know, when the Prophet passes away, he said about himself, when I pass away, all of the aspects of Nabu will be lifted from earth, except one dreams. It doesn't mean a person can become a Nabi. It means one of the ways of the divine communication with humanity, the divine communication with the prophets, the way one of the ways Allah's Prophet communicated with the prophets, that channel will remain open. <laughs> it doesn't mean anybody can get prophethood by that. It's not going to be a means to bestow prophethood, confer prophethood. Nobody can become a prophet anymore. But dreams as a message and signal and communication from Allah, that will continue. One of the earliest things and second thing you have to put in the workshop is what are all the works of the Psalmic scholarly tradition? The more famous one that most of you hear about is Ibn Sirin, by the way, as opposed to Ibn Sina. Ibn Sirin is the Tabin who wrote on Tabir Roya. That has been translated into English and it contains all types of strange things. <laughs> Ibn Qayyim al Jaziyah. Ibn al Qayyim al Jaziyah has also written a book on Tabir Roya. But they'll never translate that for you in English. <laughs> they don't even want you to know that that book exists. If you were to read that, you would see. Even Ibn Kaim al doesn't think that it's just about Hadith. Oh, there's a lot of strange things in that book also. <laughs> so this is a very complex, strange world. Interpretation of dreams. And what dreams mean. I will simply tell you that the vast majority of dreams are simply a product of a person's psyche. It's the pure, exactly how psychology and neuroscience together explain why a person dreams. It's a very rare dream that is actually a message and communication and signal from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of the ulama in the past have identified certain signs in the imagery because dreams is all about visual imagery, seeing images, right? In the imagery that would suggest with a strong probability that that is a dream, that is a communication and a message from Allah. And then secondly, certain signs in that imagery that can suggest, but not at certainty, but at levels of probability as to what the meaning of that dream is. Alright? So what does that mean here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a communication to this person sent the shabih, the likeness and image of Janid Baghdadi to this person in the dream. Janid Baghdadi is not coming himself in the dream. He has no idea this is happening. He is resting in his cover. Our view of him, because we view him to be amongst the awliya. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, Rihmullah, his fatawa Ibn Taymiyyah has written about Junaid Baghdadi. He's called him amongst Mashaykh al-Islam wa A'immat al-Huda. That he is from the Shaykhs of Islam and the Imams of Guidance. Right? So, Nabi Kareem Samsan Hadith, that the grave of such a person is Rawdatum min Riyad al-Jannah. Right? His grave is like a garden from the gardens of Jannah. Right? So he's, he's not aware of the stream at all. It's not him. Some people think it's Alami Amthal. Alami Amthal means the world of likenesses. Uh, this is, for example, when the Prophet went on Isra and Miraj. 
So when he went on Isra on the night journey to Jerusalem, and all of the prophets were there, and he led all of them in prayer, those weren't, what was it? In what sense were the prophets there? In what sense were the, that's called alami amthal? Their amthal were there. The forms and likenesses were there. Not their hakikat. Not their hakikat. Alright? Khair, but that's a very debated and discussed issue. Some would also say for Nabi some definitely his hakikat. But for the other anbiya, there's a difference and discussion on this issue. But that's also not what's going on here in the dream. It's a shabi in Arabic. It's just an image that resembles Janine Baghdadi sent to this person in the form of the dream. So that's why it's not Junaid Baghdadi saying actually what happened to him. Right? Because it's not Junaid Baghdadi saying anything. It's not Junaid Baghdadi in the dream. It's an image that has a resemblance to Junaid Baghdadi sent by Allah So that's how sometimes this image, and this is a common thing. You find this whole incidence of mentioning Imam al-Dhahabi, very famous Hanbali Muhaddith also mentions things of these dreams of this kind in his seer, in his book that talks about uh, the biographies of early Muslim scholars. Right? And what it is, is a communication from Allah to this person. Maybe this person had a misunderstanding about Junaid, Imam Junaid Rahimullah. Maybe he was thinking that, oh, Imam Junaid Baghdadi, the incredible thing is all the fancy stuff he said about the Sawaf. So Allah is trying to educate this person. This is a type of hidayah. So the person doesn't get misguided. Allah sends him this dream and this imagery and these words so the person will realize that no, what benefits anyone and everyone, even the great ulama and awliya like Imam Janid Baghdadi is amal, is ibadah, is their tahajjud, is their ibadat with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what's going on in this dream. Alright? So Imam Ghazali cites this dream as an illustration to him that no, that don't think that if you have ilm you don't need amal, even the greatest awliyaullah, who had the greatest type of ilm, which is manifatullah, even they will only be saved in the Day of Judgment due to their amal. Alright? So that is how this story is being used to illustrate and to drive home the part of the Sadith. Next page, page 8. Ayyuhal Walad, be neither destitute of good deeds, muflis is the Arabic, don't be bankrupt. Of amal salih nor devoid of spiritual states, this is ahwal. What does it mean by spiritual state? This is called sabr, shukr, tawakkul, muhammad ilahi, ishkar rasul, zuhud. These are all spiritual states. Fear, hope, raja'a, hope. These are all ahwal. Ahwal al-mu'mineen mentioned in Quran al-Kareem. These are the words Allah Sponsor mentioned. Sabirin, Zakirin, Shakirin, Kanitin, Mutawakirin, Mussinin, Muttakin, Salihin, Siddiqin, Sadiqin, Muqlisin. All of these are ahwal. To be in a state of sabr. Right? So a person needs a'mal and ahwal. They need acts, good acts, and they also need good feelings. They need the feeling of shukr. They need the feeling of sabr. They need the feeling of haya. They need the feeling of yakin. They need the feeling of tawakkul. So you can just think feelings if you want. Spiritual feelings. And we need to have good spiritual feelings because much of the Quran is trying to guide us to those feelings. For you can be sure that mere knowledge, means knowledge alone, will not help. Now he himself gives another example. And this is a classic method of moral education throughout human history. To explain by means of examples, parables, etc., 
So the example is, oh, a man in the desert had ten Indian swords. This is an interesting thing. Some of you will enjoy this as well. We could show this to you. Ashratu asyafin hindiya. Apparently, apparently, amongst the Persians and the Arabs, Indian swords. You can think desi swords. <laughs> yes, desis were known for their swords. Today, the Japanese, we think the Japanese had swords. Apparently, in the Persian and Arab, in the Islamic world, and even in Persian Arab lands, the finest sword for the Mujahid was an Indian sword. Allahu Akbar. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. Hmm? Tell them. Alright, it's there. You can see anyway. It's put Indian for you. Right? Okay. And other weapons besides that. So he has 10 Indian. He meant 10 fine. Think for you, for me to explain to you, 10 finest Japanese samurai swords. And that's what you need to hear. But actually the reality was 10 Indian swords. Hmm? It's 10 world class, finely, fine craftsmanship. Alright? And there's other weapons besides that. Plus on top of that, the person is brave. The man is brave. And a warrior. Alright? Is brave and is a warrior. And then a huge terrifying line attacks him. What is your opinion? Will the weapons that he carries repel the danger of the attack of this lion from him without them being used and being wielded? Just having the swords is going to be a benefit? It is obvious, no, that they will not repel the lion unless they are drawn and wielded. So he's saying the same thing, that you are a Madrasa graduate. You studied Ulum al-Islamiyah, you have Indian swords. That's what he's saying. He's saying you have the noble ilm of tafsir and of hadith and usul and fiqh. And you're not going to use it? How is it going to repel your nafs then? You have all of the weapons to fight the nafs, but if you don't wield those weapons, you will not be able to defeat the nafs. You're a warrior. That's how he's describing the alim. You're a warrior. But if you don't use the weapons against the nafs, you won't succeed. Look at the tirbiyah Imam Ghazali is doing of the ulama. Hmm? Likewise, if a man studied, so now he makes it clear what is the parallel he's drawing. If a person studied a hundred thousand intellectual issues, mas'alatin ilmiya means yeah, knowledge issues of Islamic knowledge, and understood them properly, but did not act on the strength of them, they would not be of any use to him. They can never be of any use to them except by taking action on them. Or it is, it is as though a man had a temperature and jaundice, which is treated, and here he's tried to translate this, right? And I don't know what the other translators may have put here. Oxymel and barley infusion. The barley infusion part is okay. I don't know exactly what he means here by uh, oxymel, because the Arabic that is written here is bisikanjin. And sikanjin, he's translating as oxymel. Allah I don't know that myself. Alright? But think some type of herbal natural remedy. Okay? So what he's saying is, that he will not be able to get any shifa, any bara'a. He will not be cured of that illness except by using that remedy. Right? So if you have an illness, the cure of which, let's say, is antibiotic and aspirin, you will never be cured from that illness unless you use the antibiotic and aspirin. Right? So you have a cure for your nafs, which is your ilm. But you won't be cured from your nafs unless you use that ilm. <laughs> then he has another thing, and this is, this is Persian poetry. 
In fact, today as I'm going through it, I, I don't know. I'm actually feeling perhaps it was a person translated into Arabic. It may make some sense because also their more private personal writing was done in Persian. Because in the day they were Persians, right? And so if you write a loving letter to your student, and again this was in the mothers of Nishapur, so great chance that the student was also Persian. Allah uh, Allah. Anyway, one cannot say definitively whether the original was Persian or in Arabic. So now poem, and they will have to comment on this as well. Poem. Though thou pour two thousand measures, and I can't because I don't know Persian, so I can see it, but I have no idea. And though thou pour two thousand measures of wine, unless thou drink, no oblivion is thine. First let me explain the poem, and then let me explain a question that some of you may have in your mind. Explaining the poem, what he's saying is the drunkard, the person, and in, in, in Arabic also there's a lot of poetry, it's called khamriya. Poetry that certain Arab poets, obviously not very pious people, wrote in praise of wine. <laughs> And one of the things they write a lot about, and obviously the West loves to study this because it's that part of Arabic poetry that they can identify with, right? So you find a lot of the English literature on Arabic poetry is focusing on wine poetry, right? So what the person is saying in the praise of wine is that he's saying, this is a person who loves wine, and he's saying that wine has this incredible ability to intoxicate, but just pouring it isn't going to do it for you. You're going to have to drink it. That's what he's saying. You can pour 2,000 glasses of wine, but unless you drink it, no oblivion, the bliss that they felt of getting drunk, the inebriation, intoxication, won't be yours. Can I question? Sometimes, again, people's modern contemporary Muslim sensibility is why would Imam Ghazali use a poem about wine? Wine is haram. What's going on here? Haram, haram, bid, Brother, look at Ghazali, look at the Ghazali wine, you know, did he need to do this? Did he need to do that? Well, I also explained to you another tradition of wine poetry, both in Arabic and Persian. Wine was used as a metaphor. And even the non-Muslims who write about this, they, they write this, but they can't understand this fully. That wine was used as a metaphor for love of the divine, love for Allah. It was used, and being drunk on wine was used as a metaphor for being drunk in the love for Allah subhanahu wa most famously, Mulana Rum, Jalaluddin Rumi, or Humulana is Masnavi, a great Persian masterpiece of poetry. Use it. And he goes all the way. He talks about the tavern, which you call the bar and the pub. And he talks about the goblet. And he talks about the pour of the wine, and the wine, and the drinking of the wine. The tavern is actually the khanka, the zawiya. The person who pours the wine is actually the sheikh. The goblet, the cup of the wine, is actually the marid's heart. The wine is actually the muhabbat and manafat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was metaphor. This was simile. This was a kinaya that was used. Now if you think about it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has said that there will be rivers of wine in Jannah. Now nobody thinks that the rivers of wine in Jannah is literally. You're not going to be getting 1860, you know, whatever, vintage red wine in Jannah. That's in A. <laughs> not like that. <laughs> that you get happy. <laughs> if you're not going to drink this wine in this world, you won't get It's a metaphor. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an al-Kareem can use wine as a metaphor, Nabi al-Kareem sallam revealed by Allah hadith as well, mentions wine as a metaphor that it will be something that is under the Nehmas of Jannah. So for the Muslims and the Sawaf to use that is completely acceptable. Whether it's preferable or ideal or not, that's your own personality, temperament. A person may say, I would prefer not to use wine, that's also fine. That's a personal preference, Islam allows for that. 
and somebody who wishes, who prefers to use it sometimes to explain something is completely permissible in Islam. Because wine as a metaphor, right, is there in the text of the Deen of Islam. So here, here actually, it doesn't really matter whether Imam Ghazali is using wine literally. The poet who wrote the poem that Ghazali is quoting, whether that poet was thinking of wine literally or as a metaphor, either way, it illustrates the point Ghazali is trying to make. That unless, even if you know 2,000 pieces of knowledge, unless you use those knowledges, drink that knowledge, internalize that knowledge, the knowledge will not be of any benefit to you. Alright? Okay. Then it continues, even if you studied for 100 years and collected 1,000 books, you would not be eligible for the mercy of Allah SWT except through action. And then it quotes from Quran, that no human being will get anything except for that which they make sa'i, which they strive for, which they make effort for. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran al-Kareem. And then he quotes another ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran, فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ And that person who yearns to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that person who is hopeful to meet his Rabb and Lord, فَلْيَعْمَنْ أَمَلًا صَالِحًا that that person should act a righteous action, should do a'mal salih good deeds. So now he quotes from Quran. Now again, the modern Muslim, our temperament is we would have started from Quran. In many classical writings, they end with Quran. They build the argument up to a crescendo, and the climax, the peak of that is the Quran. It's just a different style of writing. That's all it is. Again, to engage in sort of negative polemics and suggest that, okay, Ghazali puts the Quran at the end, he puts the Sufi stories first, he puts Janet Baghdadi first, Quran later, which hmm? Persian poetry first, Quran later. This is just mere polemical attacks. It's an unjust, unjustified critique of Ghazali. And if somebody who is not read widely in the classical medieval Islamic tradition, this was the style of writing. And actually, for these people, it makes sense that the Quran is the ultimate. The Quran is the harfi akhir. It's the last word. Alright? Then he mentions uh, another ayah. Inna ladhina amanu wa amilu salihati kanat lahum jannatul firdos. Some of you didn't know that, by the way. Some of you thought jannatul firdos was some desi word. Or maybe something at best that came in hadith. It's in Quran. Quran al-Kareem. That indeed those of the people of Iman and those who do righteous actions, to them they will have Jannat. They will have gardens, Firdos. Firdos is just another word also for, you can say paradise, heavenly gardens. Nuzulan Khalidin Fiha. That they will dwell therein, they will reside therein, they will enter therein. Khalidin Fiha, live there forever. La Yamruna Anha Hiwala. And they will never ever want to divert from there. They will never want to be distracted from there. They will never want to leave that place. Okay, next page. Then Imam Ghazali mentions another ayah. فَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ خَلَفٌ أَضَاءُ الصَّلَاةَ وَاتَّبَعُ الشَّهَوَاتِ فَسَوْفَ يَلْقَوْنَ غَيًّا إِلَّا مَنْ تَابَ وَآمَنَ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا فَأُولَٰئِكَ يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةَ وَلَا يُظْلَمُونَ شَيْئًا Indeed, there are people who have been followed by people who have neglected their salah 
and who have followed their shahwa, followed their lustful desires, then what is going to happen to them? They will meet their doom. Such a person who neglects prayer and follows their lustful passions will meet their doom illa, except that person mantaba, who makes toba. Step one, toba. Wa'amana, and then renews their iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number three, wa'amila saliha, and then does righteous actions. These are the people of toba, of iman and ahmal salih. They will enter into jannah. They will not be oppressed in the slightest of ways. Then, Imam Ghazali then returns to a hadith and he says, it's a very famous hadith, that Islam is predicated on five things. This is the hadith from which the five pillars comes. That Islam is predicated and established on five things. This is the five pillar hadith. Number one, shahada. Bearing witness that there is no being worthy of worship except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Nabi Kareem sallallahu is the last and final messenger of Allah. Number two, ikam is uh, salah. To regularly establish the prayer. Number three, ta'a zakat. And to regularly offer zakat. Number four, wasom ramadan. And to fast in the month of Ramadan. And number five, wahajj al-bayt al-iman To make the hajj of Baytullah for that person who has the ability to seek a means to it, who has the means to travel towards it. Alright? Okay. Then Imam Uzai said, Faith is a verbal declaration and consent by heart and action in accordance with the five pillars. This is a little bit of an ishara to a very famous debate that took place in Islamic theology, that what constitutes Iman? What is Iman made up of? Is Iman just lie in the heart? Does Iman lie in the heart and also professing it with the tongue? Does Iman lie in believing in the heart, professing with the tongue and also performing actions? Very briefly, this debate, and some of you may have heard these terms, Mu'tazila, Khawarij, right? Mutakallimun, Muhaddithun, right? There was one group, Kyle, just because to keep it a little bit short, the end position of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah was, was reduced to two positions. Number one, they felt that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what did they do? They built a workshop. So let me use this as an example for you. They built the workshop. What would be the workshop in this case? What is Iman? What is Iman? That was the workshop they built. In order to understand that, they looked at all of the ayahs that you have, have talked about Iman. Every tafsir of every mufassra and every single ayah on Iman. All of the ahadith that talk about Iman. Every commentary of every muhaddith on every such hadith that talks about Iman. And when you build that workshop, you will find a lot of different things can come out from that workshop. Because Iman is such an obviously multifaceted, deep thing. What is faith? What is Iman? What is faith? How many of you have Iman that I have a bowl in my hand? Quickly, raise your hand. So that's wrong. Wrong. So you look at the workshop, what does Allah Subhanahu say? Alladina yu'minuna bil ghayb. That those who believe in the unseen. This is seen. That's another Arabic word for this called mushahada. You don't have iman that I have a ball in my hand. You have mushahada. You see that I have a ball in my hand. How many of you have iman that I have a tasbih in my pocket? 
Okay, the few few faithful, so to reward the few faithful. <laughs> I have a tasmi, rosary beads in my pocket. That was unseen. <laughs> so if you believed I had it without seeing it, that is called Iman. Right? So Iman versus Mushahida. So one example, one thing we learn from the workshop about Iman, that Iman in the context of Islam means to believe in unseen. But fascinating thing you realize from here, what does the word the Prophet used in this Shahada? Why does it say Shahada? It means to testify to your Iman as if you see it. To believe in the unseen at such a level of certainty that it is as if it's seen. Kal Mushahada. That's why it's called Tashahud. That's why it's called Shahada. To profess your belief in the unseen with such a yaqeen, with such a conviction as if it's seen. Allah Akbar. Just the Arabic language will teach you things about Iman. <laughs> A lot one could say about Iman. The root of Iman is Hamza Mim Noon. The root form is Aman. Iman means to create Aman. So the act of believing in the unseen Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with such certainty, yakin as if he is seen, brings a person into a state of Aman. Brings a person to a state of complete peace and sanctuary and tranquility and sanctity. So here in the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jamaat, it was agreed that there are two ways broadly in the text that Iman is used. The first is what they call Nafsi Iman. Nafsi Iman means bare minimum Iman. And second is what they call Kamil Iman. means perfect and complete Iman. And there was agreement that nafsi iman actually just lies in the heart, in the kalb. It's just a feeling, spiritual feeling in the heart that I believe in Allah. But they felt that it was necessary to profess it with the tongue because there are certain ahkam shari certain legal rulings in Islam that are dependent on being able to identify a person as a Muslim or not a Muslim. For example, a Muslim woman can only marry a Muslim man. If everybody just had iman in their heart, how would she know who she could marry? Right? So you have to profess it on your tongue because there are certain aspects of the establishment of deen that require identifying who has iman or not. And then they felt actions are part of kamil iman. The more a'mal you do, the more you perfect your actions. The more you perfect your iman, sorry. The more a'mal, the more actions you do, the more you perfect and complete your iman. Alright? This is why, for example, another very famous ayah that's part of this workshop, Allah subhanahu says in Quran, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu aminu billahi wa rasuli. Literally means, oh you have iman, have iman, and Allah and the Messenger. <laughs> so what does it mean? It meant, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu, all those of you who have nafsi iman, who have began the journey at the starting point of iman, aminu, now have absolute, complete, and perfect iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this is some ishara to this issue that he's talking about over here. So Iman is to have a verbal declaration, right? And consent to seek, to attest to it and confirm it with one's heart. And to do Amal according to those five pillars and all of the Farais and Majibat, etc. And the evidence of deeds is incalculable, even though the worshipper attains Jannat, by the bounty and grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that a person attains Jannat due to the fuzzle and karam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what does this mean? that actually a person will not enter Jannah 
by means of their a'mal. There are no actions that make a human being worthy of Jannah. There is no level of action like that. There is no level of ibadah like that that makes a person worthy, mustahik, makes a person that Jannah has become their right. No. Everybody and anybody who enters Jannah is only going to enter due to the fazl, karam, rahmah, the grace, blessing, generosity, mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, what is it that attracts that mercy? What is it that can make us a magnet for that mercy? That is righteous action. That is good deed. That's the role of A'mal al-Saleh. It makes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy descend on us. So that is our role to attract that mercy. And if we attract that mercy, Allah ta'ala will send that mercy. And one of the forms and the ultimate form of descending that mercy is giving us admission into Jannah. Nevertheless, this is consequent to his being predisposed through obedience to him and worship of him. Since the word, the mercy of God, Rahmatullahi Karibum Min al that the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is close to the Muhsineen, the people who are people of virtue and nobility and excellence in their worship. If furthermore it is said that he gets there by faith alone, that he gets to Jannah by Iman alone, we reply, Imam Muzaffar yes, but when will he get there? Because okay, there is a hadith that a person will eventually enter Jannah. That's what it means. That as long as a person, very famous hadith, who dies in La ilaha illallah, he will enter Jannah. And so somebody says that so in that hadith, so they look at that piece of the workshop and they say, okay, but there's no mention of amal here. It's just Iman. Have Iman and go to Jannah. So he says, yes, but you have to understand that piece of the workshop with the other pieces. Because <laughs> otherwise so much of the Quran says, Alladina amanu wa amilu salihat. This is an oft-repeated phrase, right? Alladina amanu wa amilu salihat. Alladina amanu wa amilu salihat. And then here you may have some texts that just talk about Alladina amanu. So what's going on? So a person who knows how to reconcile and combine and harmonize all the different nusus, all the different ayat, Quran, hadith, and nabuwi. So that understanding is that a person, yes, they will get to Jannah, but eventually. <laughs> it's a long road, right? There's the long way to Jannah. That's called through Jahannam. That's called through Jahannam. In fact, we know in a hadith, Nabi Akram Sassam has mentioned, who is that person who will be the last person to enter Jannah? Who will be that person who is the last person to enter Jannah? So it's a long hadith, it's in Mishkat al-Musabih that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will address the people of Jannah and ask them that okay, now we're going to do one more round of shifa. Anyone you look in Jannah and anyone you can identify as having a drop of Iman we will take them out. So then all of the Ahl Jannah will identify anybody who they ever knew who had belief in Allah. This is bare minimum Iman now. Right? This isn't Kamal Iman, otherwise they wouldn't be there, right? This is the bare minimum Iman, that they believe that Allah exists. They believe the Qur'an was the word of Allah. They believe that the Prophet was a prophet. They had these basic beliefs, right? So they will be identified and they will be taken out. Then Allah SWT will ask them, are you done? And then they will say, yes. Allah SWT, there's nobody left in Jannah who we can even identify as having a remote drop of Iman. Then the hadith continues that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take out literally two scoopfuls, two handfuls, but obviously not literally because Allah does not literally have a hand. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take out two more groups of people from Jahannam. And so the people of Jannah will ask, Ya Allah, who are these people? Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say that these are those people whose iman was so hidden, 
with such a faint speck drop of Iman that only I knew that they had Iman. <laughs> no one knew that they had Iman. Only I knew they had Iman. So I'm taking them out. These are the last people to leave Jahannam and then Jahannam will be sealed. Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does that, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does that, there, it's mentioned about them that those people are going to be blackened beyond recognition. Because they had spent so much time in Jahannam, they are charred and blackened beyond recognition. Allahu Akbar Kamira. Allahumma ajirna minan na. Charred and blackened beyond recognition. Then what will happen to them? They will be dipped into Hose Kosar. They will be dipped and drowned into Hose Kosar. They didn't get to drink from Ozikosar from the hands of the Prophet Solomon round one. <laughs> they were sent to Jahannam. Now they will be dipped and drowned in Ozikosar. It's a fascinating debate in the ulama as well, Muhaddithin, about which water is Abzal. The water in Jannah, the water in Zamzam, or the water in Kosar. Ajib, when you hear this, there's a lot of fascinating, lovely, pleasurable discussions that take place in these books. You should start to read them. Care, we have to make sure we finish at least this one with you. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming here also. <laughs> right? They will be dipped and drowned in Hosekosra and then they will come out and their physical body will now become pristine and pure again. They will have one mark on their forehead that says Otaka or Rahman. Means the freed slaves of Rahman. Allah Ta'ala freed them. Allah Ta'ala freed them from Jahannam. And then they will enter into Jannah. And when they enter into Jannah, they will make dua to Allah that, Ya Allah, that we've forgotten everything of that place, that dark, terrible, punishing, torment place that we were in. There's one reminder, <laughs> this Utaqar Rahman that we have. And indeed, we were freed by your mercy. But to take this mark off our forehead as well. And Aspanta will take it off from them. Because in Jannah, whatever you ask from Allah, He gives it to you. Allah Akbar. And that's the name of Jannah. Whatever you ask of Allah, He will give to you. <coughs> and the, the, the twisted young Muslims in American England always ask, so what if I ask Allah this? <laughs> no. You will be pure. You will only have the purest of desires. You won't have those impure desires that you had here. I say, nay. You won't have those impure desires that you have here. That you would even think you won't be from the, it will be inconceivable, unfathomable for you, for you to ask those things of Allah. Because they'll be taken out from you. <laughs> Either we will have been purified through Jahannam, the long road, or we'll be purified on the Day of Judgment by the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Kun fayakun. He will say, become pure, and they will become pure, and they will go into Jannah. They won't have any of those desires anyway. Hmm. Alright, here, back to our text. Page 10. So if more were said he gets there by faith alone, we reply, yes, but when will he get there? How many difficult obstacles must he overcome before arriving? And the first of these obstacles is that of Iman itself. And will he be safe from the denial of Iman or not? As if he doesn't do any A'mal, he is in danger of losing his Iman. If he doesn't protect his Iman with A'mal, he could fall into agnosticism, fall into atheism. He could lose his very faith. That's the first challenge itself. And when he arrives, will he be unsuccessful and destitute? Al-Hasan al-Basri, Al-Hasan al-Basri, the greatest tabin. Sent by Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu and his Amir al-Mu'mineen. And he was Khalifa to Basra. 
not from Basra, sent by Sayyidina Ali to Basra. And he sent a letter to all of the people of Basra. And from now on you take your deen from Hassan. It's also established from Khulafai Rashidin, an entire community of Basra was told to take their deen from one mujtahid, Hassan al-Basri. Just like Nabi Karim Sassam told all of Yemen, all of Sahaba of Yemen were told to take their entire deen from one mujtahid, Sayyidina Muad ibn Jabal. Is that the only model? Okay, not necessarily. Is that an acceptable model? Yes. You can take all your stars from one mujtahid. The Prophet himself told all Sahaba of Yemen to take all your ijtihad from one mujtahid, Sayyidina Muad ibn Jabal. Sayyidina Ali Rallam told all of the people of Basra to take all their ijtihad from one mujtahid, Hassan al-Basri. Tameen. So Hassan al-Basri said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say to his worshippers on the Day of Judgment, O worshippers of mine, enter the garden by my mercy and divide it between you according to your deeds. This is what is called a mursal hadith. That sometimes the Tabi says something and he doesn't say which Sahaba told him and he didn't even say that the Prophet said it. So we're not even sure is it something that the Prophet said or is it something the Hassan al-Basri is saying to explain. It's left, we do tawakkuf. We have to reserve judgment as to what is the nature or ultimate final source of this statement. Right? But it's being cited here because it establishes the fact that entering Jannah will be based on the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa Page 12. Ayyuhal Walad, O my dear and beloved son and student and disciple, insofar as you do not act, if you don't do amal, you will not get ajr, you will not get thawab, you will not get the reward, you will not be compensated for it because you don't act. It is related that a man from the tribe of Israel, this is another thing, another source in Islam, this is known as Israeliyat. What are Israeliyat? Israeliyat are those reports from Jewish and Christian traditions that Sahaba Ikram used to mention. Sahaba Ikram used to mention these things and some of it was because some Sahaba were former Jews and Christians some of it was because some Sahaba knew monks and rabbis and so they would mention some of these traditions and there are different statements in hadith about their use Ibn Taymiyyah in Usul al-Tafsir has mentioned what is the proper way to use Israeliyat, these particular reports and what he mentions in that is this generally accepted way is that number one, if it agrees and conforms to something that is mentioned in Qur'an, then it can be cited as ta'id, as corroborating evidence. And also for us to see that what are the elements of the Jewish and Christian traditions that we feel are uncorrupted. Because the Qur'an refers to itself many times, musaddikan, that it comes to do tazdik of what has come before, it comes to verify what has come before. So sometimes we have that. that. And you're saying we have what has come before that is being verified by Qur'an and the Israeliyat. We have those scriptural, Christian and Jewish scriptural teachings that are being confirmed by Qur'an. So if they're confirmed by Qur'an, they can be cited. If they go against some teaching of Qur'an, then they cannot be cited. That I think everybody is clear. And then the third category, if they neither confirm, they're not confirmed by Qur'an, nor are they going against Qur'an, so in that middle area, for that Ibn Taymiyyah says they can be used, but they're not definitive knowledge. Don't know for sure, for certainty, if that's the case. All right, but they level, they, they show a level of probability. And why is the probability there? Because it's the understanding that Sahaba Ikram would have transmitted those Israelites wisely and carefully. And there's a chance that they would have transmitted those that they may have shared with the Prophet and he had approved them to be authentic, part of the original Torah and Injil. But we can't say it for certain. We can't say for certain. 
So this is one example of that. It is related that a person from the tribe of Israel, that a person from the Bani Israel, worshipped Allah Subhanahu for 70 years. Then Allah Subhanahu wished to show him to the angels. So Allah Subhanahu sent an angel to him, wished to show something about him, wished to show a special attribute of his to the angels. So Allah Subhanahu sent an angel to him to inform him that in spite of all of this ibadah, you're never going to enter Jannah. Allah said an angel, go and tell him that even though he's been worshipping me for 70 years, tell him that he's never going to enter Jannah. So when he heard this, the worshipper replied that it doesn't matter, we are created for worship and it's incumbent on us to worship him. In other words, that I'm not going to stop. I'm an abd, this is what I do. I'm an abd, I've been created for the ibadat of Allah. It's who I am, it's what I do. I wasn't doing it for the sake of Jannah. If I was doing it for the sake of Jannah and you told me I'm not getting Jannah, then I would stop. But that's not why I was doing it. I was doing it because I'm an Abd and he's my Rabb. <laughs> I'm a servant and he's my God. That's why I was doing it. So I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. And this is what Allah wanted to show the angels. Because sometimes the angels, they don't have... You see, it's a misconception. Angels don't have free will. In the sense that they don't have the freedom to disobey Allah. But they definitely talk to Allah. They ask Allah questions. You have it in Quran. Why are you creating this Adam? <laughs> What's the need for that? He's going to create fasad fil ard. <laughs> the angels ask questions. <laughs> they have intelligence. They don't have the freedom to disobey Allah. Right? So maybe some of the angels were saying, that, Yeah, okay, fine. This guy is trying to be like us. <laughs> we worship Allah all the time. Look at this little insan trying to be like us. But he's just doing it because he wants Jannah. <laughs> He's just doing it because he wants Jannah. He's doing it because he wants Jannah. So Allah said, no. So now then, when the angels comes back, right? Now the angel doesn't want to say, right? The angel doesn't want to say because he's been proven wrong. So what does he say? My God, you know best what he said. You know best what he said, right? So then, what does Allah say? Since he did not turn away from worshipping us, even though you told him he wasn't going to get Jannah, we will not turn away from him with our grace. Witness, O angels of mine, that I have forgiven him and decreed for him Jannah. So now Imam Ghazali was using the story, and the people of the Sov do that. They will use poetry. They will use stories of past awliya. They will use stories of previous traditions. This later is going to quote things from Isa Islam. He's going to use that to illustrate the point. That not only must you do amal, but you must do amal with ikhlas. Not only must you act, but you must act, do these actions purely and purely for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Purely out of love for His sake in His name. That's the type of action you have to do. Alright? Then it returns to Hadith. Qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hasibu anfusakum qabla antu hasibu. Very well known hadith. That you should take yourself to account before you were taken to account. Take yourself to task. Bring yourself to a reckoning of your deeds before the day of reckoning comes and your deeds are reckoned for you. And weigh up your deeds before they are weighed. This is the concept of weighing the deeds and the scales on the day of judgment. Sayyidina Ali said, So then saying to Sahaba as well, that whosoever believes that he will attain his goal without effort is a wishful thinker. Think about this. 
This happens to us who thinks that I'll, be, I'll become muhtaki somehow without trying to do it. I'll fix my Quran somehow without working on my tajweed. Right? I'll be able to feel Allah more in my prayer without working on my zikr. Not possible. <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> Whosoever thinks like that is a wishful thinker. And whoso believes he will reach his goal by expending of effort is also presumptuous. So if you think you can reach the goal without effort, that is wrong. If you think you're going to reach the goal because of your effort, that's also wrong. You're only going to re- you're going to reach. You cannot reach the goal without your effort. You will not reach the goal because of your effort. You will reach the goal because of the fuzzle and karam of Allah Subhanahu the grace and blessing of Allah Subhanahu That is why you will reach it. But you'll have to do effort also. You'll have to do effort also. Al Hasan al Basri Mullah. Again, Al Hasan al Basri. Seeking the garden without action is sin. What does he mean? If seeking him and having talab, yearning for Jannah, wanting Jannah without doing amal, Hasan al said, That's a sin. Allah Akbar. These were mujtahids of the heart. <laughs> he said that if in your heart you want Jannah, you claim that you want Jannah, you aspire to Jannah, you yearn for Jannah and you don't do amal, that yearning is a sin. Because it's a hypocrisy. It's a hypocrisy. Right? If you tell your wife that, you know, I love you, but you don't treat her well, and she says, no, but I do love you. I, you're right, I actually, I'm not able to treat you well, but I do love you. Oh. <laughs> right? I'll say, what type of love is that? That's a fallacy. That's untrue. It's wrong of you to love me like that. That's what she says. It's wrong of you to love What type of love is that? So this is what Hassan al-Basri was saying. That having and wanting, wanting and yearning for Jannah without doing amal, without doing the amal of salah that are the means to lead to Jannah, that's a sin. And he also said, an indication of the true state of affairs is to give up paying attention to action, not to give up action. Now watch this carefully. This English is not explaining this to you properly. But we're going to have to go back to the Arabic for this one. Alamatul Hakikati, the sign of Hakika of the truth. Tarkul Mulahadatil Amali, La Tarkul Amal. That is to not look at the state of your Amal, to leave looking at the state of your Amal, not to leave the Amal itself. What does this mean? So, for example, some people say that I don't pray because I don't feel Allah in my prayer. So, what do they do, right? They stop praying. So, Hassan al-Basra is saying is, no, the hakika, the true, the real way to go about it, is don't leave the prayer, leave, stop, leave, stop, don't stop praying, stop not feeling anything in prayer. Literally what it means here is don't stop praying, stop noticing that you don't feeling it, stop notice, noticing that you don't feel anything in your prayer. Ideally it means do something about that and try to make yourself feel it. But if you're going to leave something, don't leave the act itself. Because you can imagine it like this. Let me explain it to you in a different way. That everything has a zahir and a button. Our whole deen is about this. Everything has a zahir and a button. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala his own names. One name is al-zahir, one name is al-batan. For example, Ramadan. What is Ramadan? Staying away from food and drink. That is zahir. And lawful relations if one is married. That's also zahir. That's an outward thing. But what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in Quran? لَأَلَّكُمْ تَتَّكُونَ So that you get taqwa. Taqwa is batan. Taqwa is one of those ahwal, spiritual state, spiritual feeling of taqwa. So you did something zahir and you got something batan. So the prayer is the same way. There's a body of the prayer and there's the spirit of the prayer. 
if you don't have the spirit, don't kill the body. Because the most guaranteed way to make sure you never get the spirit is to eliminate the body. <laughs> because the spirit is going to come into the body. <laughs> so if you're upset about the fact that you don't have the that's a good thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala established prayer for my dhikr, for my remembrance, and we don't remember Allah in prayer. So we should feel bad about that. But the number one most guaranteed way to make sure we will never feel Allah in prayer is to stop praying. So that is what Hassan al Basri is trying to explain. And Sayyidina Rasulullah said, the astute man, astute he means the wise person. The wise person, samajdar. The wise person is one who passes judgment on himself. Judges oneself as opposed to judging others. Passes judgment on oneself and works for what is after death. And the fool is that person who pursues vain pleasures. And counts on Allah subhanahu to realize his wishes. What does it mean? So the wise person is the person who is always trying to catch their own flaws, their own faults, passes judgment on themselves. And based on that is always trying to work for the akhirah. And the foolish person is the one who instead of trying to catch their faults, is instead trying to fulfill all of their pleasures and desires, is chasing their passions, is a slave to their nafs. And what they do, they just expect Allah to fulfill all their wishes. So they spend years following their nafs and when they need Allah, they expect that Allah subhanahu wa should do what they want Allah subhanahu wa to do. Even when they make dua, they're just issuing orders to Allah. They're placing orders online. <laughs> That's what they're doing when they make dua. They didn't realize that they had to earn the love of Allah subhanahu and earn His mercy and forgiveness. Page 14. Ayyuhal al O my dear beloved son, how many nights have you spent rehearsing your learning? So he's talking to a mother a graduate. But you could talk to the university student the same way. But in America we call all-nighters. You must have the similar term here. How many all-nighters have you spent <laughs> for the sake of an economics quiz, a chemistry lab, hmm? an accounting problem set? How many all-nighters have you spent? But he's saying it. Two person who spent all-nighters on what? MashaAllah, the seer. Allah, can you imagine? What type of life that must have been? To spend an all-nighter on tafsir, an all-nighter on hadith, an all-nighter on understanding sharia and fiqh, an all-nighter on looking at the theology of the asmal husna, an all-nighter building and diving in the workshop of iman. Hmm? Allahu Akbar. Just to enjoy, to enjoy it. How many all-nighters have you spent rehearsing your learning? This is called takrar, takrar al-ilm. Rehearsing, revising, re-looking, re-examining your learning. Reading books, muta'ala. Those of you who are students of knowledge, takrar and muta'ala. Takrar and muta'ala. Reading books and depriving yourself of sleep. That's the all-nighter. I do not know what the motive was in this. What was your reason for doing this? If it was winning the goods of this world, that I'll make myself a good scholar so I get a good position. Hmm? I become senior imam at the big masjid in Baghdad as opposed to small imam. Hmm? I become the big imam of Jamia Masjid, Birmingham as opposed to getting assigned to being a maktab teacher somewhere in Milton Keynes. Hmm? <laughs> hmm? When I come back from my studies from Pakistan, people should call me alama and mufti and sheikh. Hmm? 
spend, spend that extra year and get the word Mufti after my name also. Hmm? Allah Akbar. Hmm? If it was winning the goods of this world, the allure of its vanities, getting its honors and vain glory. Now this is the English translator, vain glory is a very Hobbesian term. Alright? Uh, to the debit of your associates and peers. Woe to you and woe again. What does this mean? That you want to gain material gain, you want to be praised, you want status, fame. Right? You want to be celebrated. And you want to do that at the expense of your peers. You want that I should be the big alim. I should outdo the other one. The other one should be sitting in Milton Keynes. I should be get Birmingham. I want Jamia Masjid London. Hmm? Hmm. <laughs> woe to you and woe again. Imam Ghazali doing tarbiyat of ulama. We call Urdu Ragra. Ragla, Zabardas Ragra Lagani. Woe to you and woe again. But if your objective in acquiring this knowledge, ulum al-deen, was the revival of the Sharia, ihya'i shariyat al-nabiyyi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the cultivation of your character, tahdeeb al-akhlaq, breaking the nafs that incites to evil, kasr nafs al-amalat bisu, this is ayah of Quran, inna nafs al-amalat bisu'i. If you wanted to do that, then a blessing upon you there, there because فَتُوبَلَكَ ثُمَّ تُوبَلَكَ In English he's put blessing upon you. Urdu Shabash. Jitero. Tubalaka. Tubalak. Blessing upon you doesn't do it. Congratulations to you. May you be what's the English for Shabash? Hmm? Fatubalaka Thumma Tubalak. Now here comes another poem. Alright? Sleeplessness of the eye but for thy sake is vain. They're crying but for thy loss inane. Ya Allah, how could I keep myself up at night for such foolish things? Chatting away till 2 a.m. Surfing away till 2 a.m. Hmm? And then say I can't do Kamala. Hmm? <laughs> I can't pray Tajib. Hmm? They stayed up just surfing, just completely, just surfing from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Surfing. Oh, Shabash. It's the bad Shabash I'm giving you, not the good one. Hmm? Hmm? Surfing. Sleeplessness of the eye, but for you, Allah's in vain. It's better that I should have just slept. <laughs> should have just slept from 11 to 2. What was I doing? Even the Islamic, quote-unquote, Islamic surfing is not as beneficial as you think it is. From 11 to 2, reading all types of blogs and all the comments, hmm? Okay, and all the forums, hmm? And all the threads, and the sub-threads. We've lost our real learning because of this. You can't read Ghazali in Arabic because you spent all, all the time you spent on those forums and threads and blogs and comments, you could actually learn a classical language and read something in it. <laughs> what makes you think you can't learn Arabic? You could have been a first-class Arabist. Instead, you chose to be a me- mediocre blogger. Yes. You don't realize you haven't unlocked the potential inside of you. A mediocre blogger, a two-bit surfer. Hmm? So sleeplessness of the eye, but for thy sake is vain. They're crying, but for thy loss, in name, crying for any other loss. But she left me. Hmm? He left me. Hmm? Crying over that. 
I'm like, man, what are you crying over? Crying for any other loss except losing Allah. If you lose Allah, that's something to cry over. If you lost even one drop of qurb with Allah, that is something to cry over. Asmanta, I lost the qurb that I would have gotten if I had woken up for Fajr today. That's something to cry over. That was a qurb. It's a very famous hadith in Bukhari and Muslim. Hadith Qudsi. That Allah, Nabi Karim said that Allah SWT says, then I am with my servant until they draw near to me bil farais, kur bil farais. Then a second one, and then they keep coming near to me kur bil nawafil, until I become the eyes to which they see, the ears to which they hear, the hand to which they strike or do, etc. The feet through which they walk, as one says that, it's kur, kur bil farais and kur bil nawafil. That's something to cry over. From 11 to 2, I could have probably memorized three ayahs at least of Quran. In that surfing that I did, what all could I have done in that time? Hmm? That's something to cry over. Oh disciple, Ya Ayuhal live as long as you want, but know that you must die. Love whatever you want other than Allah. Love whatever you want from Ghairullah, but know that you will ultimately become separated from it. And do what you want, but know that you will be repaid for it. You will face the jaza of it. Whatever you will do, you will face the consequences of it. O oh, disciple, O oh, dear beloved son, what result have you had from studying? Ilmul kalam, ilmul balagha, ilmul tib, poetry, falkiyat, riyadat, geometry, he's calling it metrics, grammar, inflection, nahu, sarf, all of that. Other than wasting your life in opposition, to the Lord, he's addressing an alim. He's tight. This is Urdu English. Tight. Hmm? He's tightening the screws on the alim. If you don't have obedience, you don't have obedience to Allah, you don't have actions, all of the things you study, and this is a little in, it shows you what they studied in the mothers of them. They studied medicine and astronomy and logic and rhetoric and all these things along with the Quran and the Hadith and all of that. But he's specifically mentioning this because the only purpose of studying astronomy, medicine, and grammar, these were called ulume aliya, aliya, with the hamza alif drawn like a mud, tools to get the ulume aliya with the ain, the higher knowledges. It's only reward to study these things if you use them to unlock. There's no reward in studying grammar, Arabic grammar in of itself. There's only reward in studying Arabic grammar if you use it as a tool to unlock the Quran and Sunnah and do amal on it. So that's why he's taunting him a little bit. I wouldn't say taunting, but he's chastising. That all that time this is for nothing then. If you're not able to do amal, it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. It's like me telling you, right, that if you wanted to be a doctor and you didn't, right, or you, you got your MBBS but you chose not to practice medicine. So all that time you spent doing anatomy, physiology, organic chemistry, all that went to waste. That had no value except to make you a pre-med, to enable you to study medicine, to practice medicine. And if you didn't practice medicine, then all of that OCAM went to waste. That's what he's saying here. Wasting your life in opposition to the Lord. Imagine what he would do with a university student <laughs> who does wasting their life in opposition to the Lord. Now watch this. I've seen in the Injil Isa, Gospel of Jesus, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Nabi Yina. Hmm? Nay Hmm? 
our beloved Prophet Sayyidina Isa Islam because the Muslims believe in all of the Prophets. In fact, the Muslims believe that we will be the true students of Sayyidina Isa Islam on the Day of Judgment. So he says, what is Imam Ghazali saying? So it's clear what he, he looked at this. He's saying, I have seen in the Injil of Isa. It means Imam Ghazali is going to go look at it. He's not saying it like that. He's going to go see, is there any truth? Where, where is the truth? This is Ghazali's temperament. He was a true scholar. He's going to look for the truth anywhere. And I told you already how the Muslim, what is the Muslim position regarding to the things that are in the Christian and Jewish texts. Called, collectively, they're called the Israeliyat. What does he find there? That St. Isa Islam said, and in the Injili of Isa Islam it's written, from the moment the dead man is put on the bier, bier just means the stretcher that you take, right? The dead person on to the grave. Until he is put at the side of his grave, Allah SWT will ask him 40 questions. 40 questions. The first of them is, worshipper of mine, for years you purified yourself in view of men. I don't even know somebody should trace this out and see if this is in the existing Bible or you know, or any of the any of the King James or New Revised, or this is a research project you could do and try to see, right? Or somebody could help us with this, right? And we could see if this is there. I don't know if it's in the current Bible or not, right? But clearly it was in the Bible that was available to Imam Ghazali, right? So what's the first question? That worshipper of mine, for years you purified yourself in the view of men, and not for one hour did you purify yourself in my view. Every day you looked in the mirror, Hmm? combed your hair, hmm? made sure you looked all nice and handsome, you made sure you looked all nice and pretty, you adorned with beauty that outward appearance that creation looks at, you didn't adorn with a beauty that spiritual heart that the Creator looks at, you weren't worried about beautifying your heart, you were only worried about grooming your appearance, and every day he looks into your heart. Allah Subhanahu looks into your heart. He says that what is this that you were doing for others and myself? What is this ghair that I find in your heart? Love for ghairullah. Desire for ghairullah. Thoughts of ghairullah. Images of ghairullah. Memories of ghairullah. What am I looking when I see in your heart? When it is my goodness with which you are surrounded, you are drowning in my blessings and bounties and in my mercies? And your heart is filled with ghair. But as for you, you are deaf and heedless. Allahu Akbar. So this is the first. I don't know. One of you, if you research it, you can find and email me the other 40 questions. Hmm? So Imam Ghazali quotes from anywhere. He's trying to train the person. Any source of good that he can find that can bring a person to spirituality. He's going to throw it in. Next, Ayyuhal Walid, my dear and beloved son, knowledge without action is madness. This is the last one we will do and then we'll take the break. Ayyuhal Walid, my dear beloved son, knowledge without action is madness. Actually, the Arabic word is Al Ilmu Bila Amalin Junoon. Junoon. It's a folly. It's a craze. To have ilm without action means you're crazy. To have knowledge and not act upon it means you're crazy. An action without knowledge wal amalu bighayr ilmin la yukun that it means that it's as void it means that it's it, it's uh, it's as if it's not it's null and void it's not possible it's not possible 
right? To act when you don't know. You can only have action if you have knowledge. That's what he means. He's not saying, it's not an alim non-alim. Don't think like that. He's not saying a non-alim is actions or nothing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you don't have knowledge, how can you act? It's not possible. It's a paradox. If you don't know how to do hajj, how could you do hajj? If you don't know the knowledge of how to do hajj, you couldn't do hajj. That's what he's trying to say. All right? Know that the knowledge which does not remove you from sins today, that you have all this ilm and you're still doing sin, does not convert you to obedience, does not make you obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not going to remove you from jannam tomorrow. If it can remove you from sin today, how is it going to remove you from jannam tomorrow in the day of judgment? If you do not act according to your knowledge today, and you do not make amends, it means make tawbah, for the days that have gone by, you will say tomorrow on the day of judgment, and then he quotes, uh, this is an ayah from the Quran al-Kareem, فَرْجِئْنَا نَعْمُ الصَّالِحَةِ Allah Ta'ala has mentioned in the Quran, that people will say that to Allah, they just send us back, we'll do amal salih, give us another chance, right? For yukalu. In this part actually, after this is not the ayah. So the first part is the ayah, فَرْجِئْنَا نَعْمُ الصَّالِحَةِ now here, Imam Ghazali is saying that what will they say? What will be said to them? Ya Ahmaku. Ahmak is a very famous Arabic word. He's translated as fool. Sometimes people sound as donkey. You have just come from there. In other words, that you can't go back, you came from there. Just like a baby who is born cannot go back into the womb of their mother. If they're formed, if they're born without some limb that is formed, they can't go back into the womb and get that limb and come back out again. Just like that, the human being who is expelled from the womb of this world and enters into the grave and then comes in front of us upon the day of judgment, they will not be able to come back. This world is called Darul Amal, the abode of action. That world is called Darul Jaza, the abode of the consequences and recompense and either reward or punishment for that action. We'll pause over here.